Hi, Reads and Weeds listeners. This is Shelly. You are invited to a live recording of this show. It is happening at 3 p.m. on May 20th at the Independent Comedy Club in Hamtramck as part of the Detroit Women of Comedy Festival. It's going to be such a fun weekend, and I would love to see you there. The recording is free, and tickets are on sale for all the shows already at planetant.com. Hope to see you there. Hey everybody, it's Shelly with Reads and Weeds, the podcast where we smoke weed and talk about books. And I'm so excited because I have two brand new readers on here. Well, I mean, they've been reading a long time, (laughs) but this is the first time they've been on this show. What if you were just brand new readers? Like you're like, I wish I'd known about this for the last 40 years. (laughs) I'll tell you what, it was really hard to learn at this age. It took a long time. It took a lot of work, but I figured it out. (laughs) I'm so proud of you. You would think that you would have to learn to read before you become a music professor at a university, (laughs) but it turns out you could just pick it up later. Yeah, that's our best kept secret, actually. That we're yeah, all yeah. <laughs> they yeah. waive the math requirements in. <laughs> <laughs> so I uh, have on the show with me today Ross Huff and Dan Piccolo. Hello, fellas. Hello, Shelly. Hi, Shelly. Hello. And um, we do a holiday show together every year with Ebert and Friends Holiday Show at the Ark. It's been going on for 15 years. And This year, I put up a little sign that said, if anybody wants to read with me, let me know. And so a couple of months ago, I did with Emily Petersmark, we did Anxious People, and that was really fun. And she came from that show. And Dan recommended this book, But Beautiful by Jeff Dyer. And I had never read anything by him. So I'm so- I was curious if you ever heard of them, but- no, no. And now I love his voice. And now that I've looked him up and understand who he is, and I want to go back and, and read more. So I'm excited about that. And the book is called But Beautiful. Did anyone what? mark where, where the title came from? I missed it. It's in there, but I missed it. Well, it's a right, tune. Right. But Beautiful is a tune. Um, I think. Look at these. These guys are so ready. See, that's what I'm saying. It's like, I'm going to look it up before I say who wrote it. <laughs> right. That was the one part gonna, I missed. I'm not just going to hang it out there and be wrong. Hold on. Hold on. While you're looking it up, I went, I'm going to do this. I always do this. So first things first, I just went to Winewood Organics for the first time in Ann Arbor. It's the only like micro business that has a grow. When you walk into it, it smells like a grow, but they've got sort of, you know, farm to table right there in their little building. It's right on Maple near Stadium. It was so nice. So I just got Han Solo burger from there and it's lovely. So hello, Winewood Organics. And if you haven't been there, you should go if you're in Ann Arbor. And I wanted to ask both Dan and Ross, because I like to do this if somebody's new on the show. How do you, when do you think we first met, Dan? When's your recollection of knowing me? Um, I mean, I will say that my memory of like our relationship is very connected to the holiday show. And so I, but I do, when you mentioned that, I was thinking about this. I feel like you and I met before the holiday show, but I can't remember what it was. And the best I could come up with was Seva in like, this would have been like 04, 03. Were you like, did you hang out there? Did you work there maybe? What's that? 
Firefly Club. Maybe that's what it is. Yeah. But I mean, I worked at Savon. I was that was what my like connection to that time. But anyways, oh, so close, my closest me my, my most vivid memory is definitely like the, the hop first holiday show when you were emceeing. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Well, I figure it was probably either Firefly Club. Yeah, that's probably more likely, actually. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I was, I remember, yeah, yeah, totally like Ben Pulser days, right? Like yeah. That time period in Ann Arbor. It's so weird. It's so weird. It was such a huge part of my life. Ross, what do you think? I, it was pre-holiday show era because we worked on the Cowgirl Cabaret. Yep. At, at what was then PJ's Live. Now it's live yeah. and there's a few other venues. And then the, and then the Firefly Club that you worked at. Yeah. And, uh. And those were in the in that Ben Pulser area because that's how I met Dan was subbing for Ben. Well, we knew each other at school, but yeah, we had C C um yeah C A O C A O. What's so, that? The Creative Arts Orchestra. So this is like part of our shared musical journey. Like, yeah, yeah. It's, a, yes. it's an all it's an all improv ensemble. Kind of, I guess, more or less housed within the jazz department at um, University of Michigan. Okay. But, you know, you don't, instead of like showing up and playing tunes, or like learning how to play these, this music in a particular tradition or whatever, you just kind of show up and play, you know? And yeah. there's a teacher who's like this guy who's this total genius. Did you ever take lessons with him at all? Trumpet lessons, Ross? A couple. Yeah. Just a few. Yeah. Trumpet player, but he's, he's like, this is like what he does. And he's like, you know, this mad creative genius kind of guy and his thing is like sort of teaching people how to like find their voice in that and he's he's really good I mean it's a risky thing to do and so it doesn't always connect with everybody but I think he's a really brilliant teacher you know what's his name uh, his name's Ed Sarath okay okay yeah he's, I feel like I know yeah, someone like a huge impact on me I think you know like I think all of his same like you know, same yeah so deep deep yeah. guy really deep guy amazing I think um who Di Diana? I think Diana Ladio. Doesn't she teach like string improvisation to school kids or something like that? Does that uh, sound yeah. familiar? Yeah, I guess that sounds about right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Teaching improv. Well, I mean, I've taught improv, but not musical improv. And it's like you're basically feeling free within a set of rules, right? Yeah. Is that yeah. is that putting it too simply? No, I think that's a pretty good broad definition of improvisation. You know. Yeah. It could be terrible, but I just sound really confident. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that confidence is half the battle, though. It's amazing, you know? I oftentimes, yes. I, I don't know, I've talked to a lot of players who oftentimes feel like, you know, they sounded a lot better when they were younger before they knew how bad they sounded. <laughs> like, I was the <laughs> best player of my life when I was 16, and no one was telling me any better in any way at all, you know? Yes, yes absolutely. teacher just, like, taught me how to, like, play the instrument, you know, like, kind of technically. So, like, I was just, like, cool. And so I just went and played in my attic and thought I was the best, you know? <laughs> oh, yeah. I used to think I was an amazing writer. <laughs> and now I'm like, um, do I know that if this has an ending? I, I don't. I'm embarrassed now. I'm self-conscious. Yeah. But it doesn't stop me. That is. Uh, yeah, you can't let it can't let it stop you so yeah. do you, would you like me to play this tune and i i will tell you which this is the tune but beautiful which is a standard oh okay and, yes first right this, this is the first hit on youtube that featured one of the main subjects of the book so that's why i picked it 
So this, okay. is, this is Chet Baker. Well, um, wait, before you do that, before you do that, okay, okay. Um, right. tell me why, because you had a couple of books in mind and I was like, oh, that one sounds good. But why was this one of the top? Because sometimes people just wrestle like crazy over which book they want yeah. to recommend and do. So why this book? Well, it's like my go-to recommendation when I like feel like when you know if if you're ever talking about books with someone, this is like one of my go-tos because I'm always surprised how few people have heard of it, you know, mm -hmm. like um, and and of him in general, just because I think he's so great. And I haven't read a ton by him, but I have read some of his other stuff, and um, I just really like him. He he's really good writer of like reviews and articles and like essays and short things, and so. Um, whenever I see that he's written something, it's fun to check it out. And he's just, he's just this kind of like, I have this very romantic view of him as just like this kind of um, world traveler kind of, you know what I mean? Like writer, he's really into photography and jazz. And like, um, you know, I have some stuff that he's written about some Indian, he spent time in India. So I sort of like share that kinship, you know, with him and like, he just, I really like him a lot. And, and a lot of people haven't heard of this book. And I think, I think if people have read one book about jazz, like it's probably Miles or something like that. You know what I mean? Like that one's really popular. And that's a great book. And I think that's a good book to recommend. But like, I almost see this book in a way as like an anecdote to that book. You know what I mean? Because that book is so hyper fucking real. It's like, this is how gritty and fucking gnarly the shit was when we were doing it. You know what I mean? And, and this guy lived through it and came out the other side. And this book is kind of, although still, um, you know, it, it takes on really difficult aspects of things and so forth. And it paints a kind of grim picture, I guess I should say, you know, yeah. in yeah, a lot of ways. It's not optimistic, but it's um, it's like tender in a way that, that the Miles autobiography is not, if that makes yeah. sense. Like, he has this very clear, like, emotional respect for these guys, you know, yes. yeah. that well, just comes through him. so beautifully. Yes. So I so, want to point out, because I didn't before, that the reason why it's so special to have Dan Piccolo and Ross Huff on here talking about this book about jazz is because they're both professional musicians. And I know them so well that I forgot to introduce them properly because I'm like, well, of course, people know Ross and Dan. It's not important who we are. Let's talk about the book. No, I'm yeah. tell, tell, tell them about well, how Ross great we are, Shelly. He's a trumpet player in this area that's in every band and holding down so much music in this area. And he's wonderful. And you can catch him most Thursday nights at the last word. And Dan Piccolo is the, well, say your title so I don't get it wrong, Dan. Uh, I, I run the percussion area at, um, at Bowling Green State University. There you go. There you go. So and I, I play every Wednesday, usually at, um, at a brewery down here in Bowling Green, which is only about an hour drive from Ann Arbor. And people should come down and check it out. It's a nice little. Brewery. All right, Dan. Oh, OK, so. I'll get there one of these days. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah the, the real secret, Shelly, is there's only one band. It's just that yes. everyone can't be at every right. event, you know, yes. so you just have to yes. keep it rolling. And then the audience, the line to the bathroom. <laughs> like playing together. We'd get nothing done. We'd get nothing done. So play the play the tune and then just play a little bit of it because I want to respect like not using too much music. I've used yeah. whole songs before and sure. then they take that down. <laughs> so just play play oh yeah. Oh gotcha. Okay. All right. Yeah. Well, I mean, it probably will sound kind of garbled anyway coming over here, but. Okay. 
love is funny or it's sad. It's a quiet or it's bad. It's a good thing or it's bad, but Chet Baker. Chet Baker, yeah. Yeah. I had not listened to much Chet Baker. And last night when I was, oh, thank you for posting the lyrics. But I remember being so surprised when I looked at pictures after the way he was described. And I didn't expect him to be such an angular white guy. (laughs) And the voice is so androgynous. It's really... I think that might I think that might be post teeth too, you know, which like just yeah. Post teeth. Breaks your heart, man. Dan, you you mentioned the different character of this compared to like Mingus and and Miles's books. Mm -hmm. Um and uh, several times I I like was like, I gotta stop reading this. I think it's so sad. Right. Like it it was really and he and then about the perspective of the narrator sort of seemed to me like was uh, maybe like an even lesser known sideman who was kind of there and kind of bouncing around right. these people's bands. It sort of seemed like that was what, like where yeah. where the Dyer was placing himself as like a, a drummer, a piano player that was maybe on a few sessions uh, showing up to the jams and stuff like that, kind of in the shadow of these guys. It was and like I thought that was a took cool role of technique. Harry driving the car with uh with Duke or something. You yes. Know? Yeah. His part. Yes. You know? So I wanted to well, ask like you about the way it was written because at the beginning in the preface it says the writing is animated by the defining characteristics of his of its subject. So what he's saying is I'm about to write a book about jazz, and the way I think about jazz is the way I've got to write this book. Like kind of, I'm gonna be quoting other people. I'm going to be dancing around some things. I'm going to take some liberties, but I'm going to stick to a true form. Kind of, he was talking about jazz, you know, and how he was going to write the book. And I really loved that he set it up that way. It it almost, for me, it created the proper expectation of like, so I wondered if you had any thoughts on the way it was written and how that pertains to jazz, you know? So, and also... I want to know um, if his take on the musician stories feel true to you. 
So Ross, do you want to start on either one of those? Well, what's our spoiler policy? Is anybody out there going to read this and be mad if I tell them how it ends? No, no. Well, and the thing is, is if you, there's no way for this book to be spoilers because we, it's right. It's it's history. It's history. It's happened. Right. So there's no way everybody, every book can be, it's fine. Well, the the funny part then about, about what you're asking about it being the, in the end we go, like, I like the theme that he returns to of the car trip between, um, is it Harry Carney? And Duke Ellington. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and narrated from kind of Harry Carney's perspective. I thought that was nice. The interludes. And and every musician that's been on a road trip or a tour has experienced that. But one of the notable things is just being a white guy, having experienced that from the perspective that, that those guys were experiencing from in the that era. And the totally. 10 times the difficulty of everything worse than that i'm sure um yeah i mean just anyway. thinking about how primitive like the highway system would have been oh yeah <laughs> they're going I mean, like, they had like to the go infrastructure of gas stations and stuff in the 50s even just sort of in the mechanic the cars themselves you know like it wasn't comfortable to sit in a car for eight hours in 19 no, and or whatever, what you know? where they even could gas up and get food and stuff like that it's impossible right. and that was part of what made me feel so sad like anyway back to the part of the um of the question of how it's written but so they ultimately they finally get out of the car at dawn and they're looking around for where they're supposed to play and and then one guy says like i thought you knew and he said, i thought you knew where we were playing and they're like oh <laughs> shit well i guess we'll ask at this diner and they're like no Ellington's playing tonight? wrong tune entirely <laughs> it's the wrong town entirely you're not in the you're not even in the right city and so like if that is the how jazz ends you know like what, what were we doing all this for Fuck, yeah. it's dawn and we're all hung over uh you know <laughs> but it was fun i guess like i mean but i don't think that's what you were asking about but it's a funny sort of no no way I for it. it to end you know well, he does. They, he these does. were the guys that succeeded sorry dan yes. no, I, agree. I agree with you and it's interesting that you mentioned that it's like he um he takes a dig at like free jazz maybe more than once you know a couple and, times <laughs> and, and and he and, and having re- a little bit of the other stuff that he's written, I think, you know, he doesn't kind of come right out and say it and even talk like, you know, he's into the ECM stuff. And like, you know, he he doesn't like dislike all contemporary jazz, but he does sort of, I think, maybe have this perspective that it was a really bright flame, you know, that we're kind of watching dissolve into some embers, which are maybe also going to be cool. But he sort of I think he sort of sees what it was in the 20th century as this thing that's maybe kind of like, you know. Interesting. Yeah, that that's a that astute observation and that makes sense to me yeah that's his perspective yeah when you how many of these stories did you know before you read the book and the take on it does it feel true does it feel romanticized like i didn't know many of the stories personally i mean and partially because he picks you know, which I feel like I read this somewhere, but I guess it wasn't in the book, or maybe I just missed it when I read it this time, but um, they like, he kind of purposefully picked slightly more obscure characters. I mean, I would yeah. Duke as Duke is obscure, but, you know, um, or Mingus for that matter, but, you know, I mean, I, I think it's, te- you know, I think it's telling that he didn't pick Coltrane or, and so p- part of it's that, that it's a little bit more of, um, 
either earlier musicians that as a you know young white kid in the you know 80s and 90s your gateway to jazz is coltrane you know your gateway to jazz is miles and stuff like that and so you kind of have to go back he makes a really cool point about that at one point at the end actually that i thought that i, I had forgotten from last time where he talks about like um uh how you, when you hear for people who are hearing Bud Powell for the first time, having listened to a bunch of later jazz, that it's like, okay, what's the big deal? And it's and, like, well, everyone sounds like him. That's the big deal, you know? And I was like, yeah. I thought that was really cool, you know? Um, yes, yes. But, so just, anyway, just to go back to your question about the stories, I mean, like, I think, um, I, so I don't know. I, I wasn't familiar with many of them. Does this take feel real? I don't, I mean, I think to a point, there's definitely some stuff that seems kind of, maybe a little heavy handed, <laughs> you know, well, so the listener, just so the listener understands the way this book is written, there's scenes where Duke Ellington is having a conversation with his driver and they're driving all around having these experiences and, you know, they're set differently. They're in italics. You can tell that it's sort of a running thing. And then in between are these stories of Lester Young and Coleman Hawkins and Thelonious Monk and, it's sort of a microcosm of their life at some point when things changed or some point when they became different. And a lot of it is quite sad. So I, I didn't know a lot of these stories when I read them and I was just kind of heartbroken, but I wondered if you knew them already and had you heard them told this way, or did you just think, uh, did you know this, Ross, these stories? Yeah, not in a narrative sense, but a, like apocryphally. And there was discussion with uh, like uh, both in school and like with our colleagues about like, oh, yeah, Bud Powell uh, was dealing with schizophrenia and had gone to a mental institution and had had uh, an electroshock therapy or something that really effed him up. And, and, like, and, and the, too. like those, those sort of general yeah. Like, I didn't know specifics really beyond that, personally. Yeah, there were some, and, and it, Monk was a bit of a an out guy, you know, like, kind of, like, intellectually. And these kind of ideas were there. And the theme that, that there was at one point in the book, that, and this is sort of, like, his him driving home that point, but uh, saying how so many of the stories end... Uh, the history of modern jazz is a history of musicians ending up in rooms like this. The whiteness of the like a denial of the dim nocturnal world of the music, right? So every guy is like having to kick heroin or in the, the mental ward or something. And he chooses those stories in particular to focus on. And like um, that theme was aware in, in my experience learning this music. Um, and it was, you know, just, and also the car crashes and, and your old lady shooting the guy on the bandstand and um, all that kind of stuff. Like, w we were aware of it, but never in like just a narrative way like this. And it's kind of cute, you know, for him to write it this way, but it brings the reader into it in an emotional way that just a plain history wouldn't do. I don't know. Yeah. So I kind of like that. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. What yeah, do you think, yeah, think I just about don't think jazz I can... by choosing those stories? What does it say about jazz by choosing those well, stories? Well, when I think about, I, I think, I think of he's, 
So first he tells us that he's going to write this in, in, a, in a style that honors the subject, right? Then he yeah. starts telling these specific stories right. in a certain like, way. So he guys vomiting loves, on blood. He's, he loves these people, right? He obviously wants to honor these people, but these are sad stories. And my thought was, well, what do you think that tells us about jazz? What picture oh, is he yeah, painting? Yeah. You know what I mean? He sort of comes right out and says it, uh, which part is that in where he talks about how, you know, if you go far enough back, you know, like jazz comes from the blues and the blues comes from, you know, and you basically just trace it back to the slave experience, you know? Yeah. Where is it? I can't remember where he says that, but. And it's, yeah, it's the history of the, the 21st century and of the, of the country as a whole and like. Right. It's like jazz, if it tells it's amazing that these people persevered right. and did what they did in spite of all of these things. They're just trying to deal with their situations. And right. as far as I know, in their cases of drugs and stuff like that, but I mean, they got the their things, heads, you know, hit. Go ahead. Sorry. I'm sorry. I, it's, I, I'm not used to talking on zoom. Like I used to be, <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, no, it's, it's one of those things where it's like, if he, on the one hand, it's it's it is interesting, and it's I'm reading it a second time. This time, I was also thinking about how, you know, it'd be easy to be critical of this. And I mean, I, I would I would start. It was written in 1996. I mean, the conversation about race and and it was, you know, yeah. about history and all that sort of stuff was a lot different in the 90s. You know, yeah. Here's what he thinks about that now, actually. But it's one of those things where you could say, on the one hand, if he deals with it, you can say, oh, well, you know, it's kind of brave of him to take that on. And like, I don't know that, you know, maybe, maybe it was a little risky and maybe he gets it wrong here or there, you know, in terms of how he, you know, approaches that as a white narrator, you know, but at the same yeah. time, if he only told stories that were kind of like, oh, you know, this guy made a lot of great jazz and then had a great life, you know what I mean? Then we'd be like, yeah, he didn't really deal with this shit, you know what I mean? So <laughs> it, I think in a way you're always going to be trying to find the right balance. And I think, you know, I don't think it's totally off, but I do think there are times when his, whatever, you know, I'm going to use academic words, but like his like privileged, um, like the privilege of his narrator kind of does show through, I think sometimes, you know? Mm. Yeah. Interesting. Um, so. Interesting. It, the frustration. Like Go ahead. Show. Oh, I was going to say, because as I was, I, I never thought of Thelonious Monk as like the way I think of him now, right? With Nellie kind of guiding him around and his he was consumed by sort of scattered and she's the anchor and he's just writing things and playing things and doing his thing. But it was almost like she, like without her he would have floated away and then i looked up pictures of him and i'm like oh my gosh look at them look yeah. at them how you know they moved into that apartment in new york and stayed there forever and they were just like that was their world right there in that little area and he's so in my mind Thelonious Monk is like this giant figure i guess from the music and the impact of the music i guess yeah. but in life was probably just living in this four square block <laughs> reality, like with, you know, hold, trying to hold it together. Like that was the impression that I got. And it was fascinating. So I think one thing that uh, 
that Dyer does really well is just the humanness. Like everything's very human. There's very much, he allows people to glow and be shiny, but he also talks about Charles Mingus eating so much, like a grotesque <laughs> amount and just being so big and insane that it was hard to even be in the space with him where he was like driving his appetites were like eating the world, you know? And that was a very, I didn't have that much of it. So all of these people in this book became very human to me. Like, oh, he's that guy. I know that guy. I know musicians that could go down that path or I know musicians that have gained and lost 60 pounds from the time I see him and God knows what's happening, but they're a genius. You know, I, so that's what I really appreciated. Yeah. I enjoyed that too. There was a couple. Yeah. And the way he described the, the, he imaginatively described the way Monk approached the piano and the way he approached composing and like, yeah. taking away all but the necessary parts and like playing playing the opposite of the music or something um he i love all of the kind of really descriptive parts and he did get a little poetic at times and uh yeah but he almost sometimes implied like all like whatever pain and torture and harm that these musicians went through was somehow necessary like in the case of Art Pepper, I think, like this was necessary for what they were trying to make, or somehow it it was like, and I don't I don't know that it is. I it's what you can only be left wondering, like what would have been possible if these people had like a mental health care that would have helped them, right. or or yes. or you know methadone programs or something that would have been a little more compassionate, or what the fuck the army was thinking well, yeah. you see lester young and it's like you know what go go ahead and play in your jazz club yeah we don't need you for cannon fodder what like what it it's a subtly to me like indicts the entire like establishment as a failure of of where the cult of the culture totally. yeah yeah, uh, so make story. it seem so amazing that they were able, like you said, Ross, it was like, do anything. It seems so amazing they were able to do this. Never mind create like this like incredible force of like artistic material that's like this undeniable thing, you know? Yeah. In spite of every every possible right. obstruction, uh, yeah. and that's you know, it's not mine to speak on the black experience, but this is it's right. like. This well, we, you know, we when see. I think about when I think about what would make me stop creating, and I can't think of anything. <laughs> you know, when I think about the lowest I've been, or the poorest I've been, or the busiest I've been, like the creativity has to come back, or I'll die. You know, it's like, wait, what's going on? Why am I all, why am I all off kilter? Why am I all messed up? And you to, I guess, being professional creators and performers, I would wonder, is like, there probably is nothing that would stop you either. So circumstances, like there's a quote that's something about suffering takes up the space allowed. Meaning, if you are 
for example, <laughs> Prince Harry and Megan, you know, if you're Harry and Megan, your suffering is a completely different experience, but it's still real and it's still there. You know what I mean? You're still like trapped in a life you don't want with all sorts of expectations. Da, da, da. However, you could also be an abused child. It, it, it's just saying like whatever your suffering is, you will experience it fully. That's the whole point of that, which means mm. when I think about people that were born to play music, why wouldn't they no matter what? Like, why wouldn't they? What would, I mean, it seems like if they didn't play, it would have just made everything worse because it's what they were meant to do. You know, like. All, all it takes to me to stop is a musical theater gig. And I'm like, eh, well, <laughs> I guess I'll apply at the office, Max. <laughs> oh, um, my no, God. I, I just take a day <laughs> off and I, I reset. But I don't like playing that stuff. That um, is. Do you ever do that anymore? Do you ever play those anymore? Yeah, I did one recently, and it was for the kids, and they had a good time. Yeah, yeah. but I, I it doesn't. Time. You know, what's that? I haven't done one in a long time, but I used to do a lot of them. Yeah, yeah. I don't, I don't love that. That's but, how uh, I met. That's how I met Theo Katzman. Yeah. Theo was, pit. Yeah. Theo was in the pit of hair when I did hair with with. Ann Arbor Community Theater. Nice. <laughs> yeah, the relationships are great, but the one thing is we didn't have a club to go to after to right. unwind yes. and play real music. Right. And yes. that I you could you could survive it if you could go to an after hours club and play real music and and explore yes. the territory, you know. Yeah. But yes. playing the the dudes and dots is demoralizing. But that's I'm I'm joking because it's it's that's just a dumb joke anyway. Um, but in, you know, you, and you see the example that's been set by so many and you're like, well, I've got this far and it's part of our duty to keep pushing in whatever way we can at our instruments, at the ideas of the sound we're working on. It's like a, if you get far enough, someone explains to you that you have a responsibility. And then, and it's like to pick up the baton where some, you know, to study the history of the music and to, you know, try to advance nobly and in, you know, in a creative direction for the right reasons that, I mean, that's, I'm summarizing dozen different mentors and stuff here, but yeah, that there's, there's a little that. bit of a, uh, you got to, respect the sacrifices that have been made and you know keep the, a lot of people talk about how it's important to connect to the next generation and to keep the humanity of the, of the music connected to our humanity like uh, that's a summer summarization of a lot of different yeah mental no, mentorship ideas yeah it's fascinating because i i think about when do you start doing that? When do you go like, okay, this person seems to be wanting to be in this industry. And you realize you're that guy who's like, listen, son, <laughs> you need to understand this and that about where your music came from. And why is that important? Like, why do you feel like, why do you feel like the baton gets passed like that? What, why do people feel the need to pass down certain things? Hmm. 
Well, because I mean, I, I mean, I think at least partially, I don't know, probably a lot of reasons, <laughs> but I mean, I, mean, I think Ross said it well, you like, you have to know where the music comes from, but also like, you know, um, it's, it's like empty music, you know, like if you, if you're just playing the notes and like, you know, um, if you disconnect, I mean, I think it's, I think everybody forms their own relationship with the music they play too, you know, so it's like, you're gonna, you know, have your own reason that you like doing it, but you know, you, I mean, I guess it just seems like a shame. I don't, I, I wouldn't understand why, why you would not want to be connected to the history of the music, you know what I mean? Like why, you, <laughs> yeah. why you wouldn't want it, like why that wouldn't occur to you as a curiosity, if it were really deeply important to you, like you were going to kind of do this, you know, and yeah. take a life out of this that like, you know, it seems like you would want to know where it came from and, and, you know, you would seek that information out and have questions, you know what I mean? Yeah, probably because when we first learn how to do something, especially if it's in our teens or 20s, it feels like we invented it, you know, like, look at this thing I know how to do. <laughs> and then right. you realize like, oh, wait, this has been here for that. You know what I just connected this to is a lot of times in, if you work in the cannabis industry, you see a bunch of people piling into a new state with money because they want to get in on this like it's a gold rush. And all the people that have been growing in secret for the last 50 years are like, hold on a second, buddy. <laughs> this is a sacred situation you're trampling into here like a bull in a china shop. You know, we've gone to jail for this. We've studied this. We've talked to our plants in the cover yeah. of darkness, <laughs> you know, and you're just blowing you know, yeah. and you want to sit people down and go, listen, you're messing with something that people are in jail for right now. And you're trying to treat it like a widget company. And it's yeah. a little rough. We, we want you to pump the brakes, you know, yeah. but it I can be like see... that. You, know, you see kids, these kids come into school every year and like, it can totally be like that where they're like, you know, I'm going to be a musician. Like, you know, I know what's going on, you know, I like check this out, you know, and you're like, uh-huh. I remember, I can't remember where I read it or uh, where I read it or saw it or heard it or something, but there was something that was, um, I just, I, it always, always stuck with me. It was someone writing about music and they, they sort of put out there just almost as if it were like going to be automatically understood by everyone. Um, you know, music is a young person's art, you know, it was kind of dismissive of like, this is obvious, you know, like music is a young person. <laughs> you know? And then they went on with the rest of their statement. And I was like, what? Like you lost me there at the beginning, you know, like, I'm not saying it's not. I mean, I think there's been a lot of really incredible, you know, music that's come from some really young people. But at the same time, like in the in the Indian classical tradition, like you're not considered, you know, to be a senior artist until you're 60. Like that's the measure, you know. Like you got to do yeah. a bunch of stuff too. But if you're not 60, you're not a candidate, you know. And, right. You know, I think because you just there's no possible way you could have achieved the wisdom that you would need to be regarded as such, you know. Yeah. I think yeah. you don't want to understand that as a youngster. No, you, you know, can't. Why do I? You, you, why do I have to turn forty to study the right. uh, Sephiro? You know, like, right. like what I can understand. But then you're like, oh, I can see that. Yeah. Uh, it, to kind of talk it, relate to the earlier biographical description of our experience. Like I got into playing the improvised music non-idiomatically through that group, the Creative Arts Orchestra. Like I was an orchestra guy, a classical music guy, no, and me, I didn't know how to jam. Kind of have that in common. You yeah. Know? And then I went back and talked about going backwards, and then it was like, ah, should learn how to play bebop, probably. <laughs> you know. Yeah, exactly. I didn't know how to jam, and yeah. I was not like I was on the fringe of the the jazz people, yeah. like 
because I couldn't improvise uh, melodically or, or idiomatically in bebop or barely, barely in the blues, you know? And um, so I, I had to go back through the history of the music very methodically and learn it that way. But coming from like, a, so I got into this music like that this book talks about from non-idiomatic music. So coming from more of the free music side of things and and in our uh yeah what's up i want you to explain non-idiomatic for myself oh. and others <laughs> <laughs> well like my understanding of it is an idiom is like a recognizable um like thematic gesture like a certain type of chordal structure a certain type of beat like you can tell the difference between disco and like bluegrass music because it has yes, a different feeling to it. Those are two different idioms. So non-idiomatic music is not necessarily identified with any particular genre or style. Um, and so come, we could just play anything that came to our imagination. If you could, it turns out once you can communicate more complex ideas, then you can use your imagination a lot better, which is the reason for studying bebop. Um, so I, I came to bebop and jazz through free improvisation, which was a nice window for me because I felt included right away. And I didn't have to deal with some of this exclusionary feelings of, of being a, going to a jazz jam and not knowing what was going on. Um, yeah. Uh, but so at that time, I was substituting in the church band and that band, like the saints on the wall of that church the canterbury house there was john coltrane and charles mingus and other really? figures in black american music yeah and those are the saints of that church um and we played a, a lot of, and monk and we played a lot of that music in the liturgy of, of that church that and that was like a student chapel there at, at u of m anyway so canterbury house do you know that spot Yes, yes, I've been there. I've been there. So, do they still do that? Well, jazz mass. Yeah, uh, jazz I'm not mass. sure. I'm not sure if there's, they've changed it a lot, but yeah. they're still there. And I think they're, and they're doing stuff. It's changed shape a lot. They have a new, yeah, what new a great chapel place. on there. Yeah. As I'll tell you what is great about where we live and where Dan used to live. And I feel really lucky because I remember when my nephew, when he was about in the seventh or eighth grade or something, he started playing the saxophone and I got so excited and I got him all this music and I got him some books and, and, and then he stopped like after a year and he started playing football and then he started riding dirt bikes and it just wasn't his thing. But I was like, Oh, there's nowhere for them to go. Like there's nowhere in an arbor. Yeah. It's like, oh, you can go play at the Firefly Club. You can go play at the library. You can go play. You know, there was places for young people to play music. And I can't imagine where in 30 miles a, a middle schooler would have played music yeah. in that small town. Or maybe yeah. I just aware of it. But I thought, man, I got so, so lucky. But my education of all of this probably came through the Firefly Club. I mean, all of a sudden I was just plop in the middle of nonstop music. And it felt like such a education, you know, I was suddenly just immersed and, and met all these musicians that I didn't even realize their impact on the world. 
And then, um, so what I loved about this book was I feel like I've seen so many musicians who they walk in and you're like, oh, okay. I don't know this person's name yet, but they've lived and they're about to crush it. You know, like I didn't even know how to explain it when I first started working there, but somebody's going to sit down on a stool and look like they can barely move. And then they're going to blow your mind and you're going to feel everything and you're going to go, okay, I get it. I get it. This is a living legend. I get it. And, uh, and then some people were just singing jazz songs. You know, mm-hmm. they would come with their band and they were they had a lovely voice and everybody could play the music and you'd go, oh, OK, good. <laughs> but it wasn't the same. It wasn't the same. So what I love, one of the things I loved about this book was that kind of like. There's a certain amount of expression that is visceral that is in all of these people that he chose to show mm-hmm. and when somebody has that in their music, it's just there. There's no real, well, I don't know if you guys know where it all comes from. I'm sure it's not just, just practicing a lot, you know, the big question where, you know, there's a, (laughs) that's the big question. Who has it? Where does it come from? And some people that have it never get seen or heard beyond their little scene or don't get discovered there's millions of people you know that aren't going to be seen by the gatekeepers of the industry or whatever and there's others that will and that has nothing to do with what they're bringing as a performance you know and yeah and yeah the, the fascinating thing is like when you see somebody that has it it breaks you apart immediately like um, Alice Coltrane played at Hill Auditorium not long before she passed away and that was just hair-raising experience and uh, I wanted to tell this story in a different context but I'll in a different context entirely but I was sitting down in the balcony and the people next who sat next to me was like a older man and his daughter and she had got the tickets from work and in he was like, now, who is this? She's like, well, this was the woman that was married to John Coltrane. Was like, who is this? John Coltrane was a jazz saxophonist. They had no context for what they were going to see. And she came out and played two notes and just, I started bawling and hung, just, and I was like, oh, these people don't know who this is. I have to like, like act, act normal, you know? But she oh, I was say I have to educate them. <laughs> no, no, I, I just had to like not like fall into a mess. You know, I was uh, just in two notes just blew your heart apart, you know, and you know, what was that? Why does she? Well, what is she doing mm-hmm. that? Yeah, a million other people aren't doing on the on the Tuesday night jazz jam session. Right. Um, and what and so investigating these artist this way in this book is is fascinating way to do it i think it would be a fun exercise if you were a culture writer like jeffrey dyer is you know like he seems to be uh i looked he writes about what photographers and actors and he writes a lot about other people and stuff so that's his deal i thought that was interesting but um yeah what is that and i don't know the answer but but you generally will see it when you're 
there. Yep. They they got it. Yes. Yes. So, so I wonder if, so there's a description of Mingus and he describes Mingus first as this huge appetite, right? Eating like four dinners and just confusing the people around him with rage and emotion and, and that he got so big and sometimes he'd fire half the band in a night. And just so this described this person that I did not, was not aware that this was the reputation of Charles Mingus. So I am curious, A, did you already know that reputation? B, have you worked with someone, you don't have to name them, (laughs) but have you worked with someone that was like super genius basically, but insane to work with to the point of like only the strong will survive type thing either one of you can take that i i mean i definitely knew that reputation of mingus i mean he looms large you know in the history of jazz i mean he he's you know like miles but in a totally different way um you know spans this really broad set of jazz history you know so he was kind of like really there you know, for like the core bebop stuff and then kind of, you know, lived long enough and, you know, which not all of them did, like lived long enough to kind of have his own say, you know, at like beyond that. And, um, but anyways, he, um, so I definitely knew that reputation, but I, and I, I, I think I have worked with some people kind of like that. I mean, no one that I don't think maybe quite that ex- as extreme as he's painted in the book, but um, I don't think any of us are I good mean, enough to go that far. There are a lot of colorful personalities, man. It's one of the fun things about doing this, you know, it's, and uh, you just meet a lot of really interesting people and not everyone's always easy to work with. But I also, you know, both Ross and I have been doing this long enough that, you know, the people who suck to work with get weeded out, you know what I yeah. mean? <laughs> like to that extreme, you know, like to the, but um, with me. We all have our foibles, right? We've all messed around a little bit, but you've got to, I'm not good enough to be like running afoul of people, you know, people's sensibilities. You know what I mean? I'm trying to show up on time. <laughs> In the classical yeah, music world, the classical music world is full of people like that too. <laughs> I know. You know, what's funny is in, in the comedy scene in Michigan, it's um, always been a very rich, active scene. And I recently talked to this young comedian that's just wonderful. He's doing very well on the scene, but he's very young. And he said, yeah, yeah, we're starting this new show. Cause you know how some Michigan scenes just get clicky, you know, people only book their friends and whatever. And I'm like, yeah, but it'll change. Like, don't worry about it. And he's like, no, you know, you can never get on here. We're going to start on little click over here. I'm like, okay. But also some of those people are just not going to be doing comedy in two years. It won't even matter. And that booker is going to be like arrested for something. (laughs) Do not hold on to this. Like if you really like doing comedy and you keep writing and showing up places and getting a little bit better and writing and showing up places and get a little bit better and you're nice to everybody, you're, you're going to do so great. (laughs) You know, don't worry because when I think about the music scene and the comedy scene, some people are just going to flame out or give up or, that all these crazy pressures are going to happen to them, but instead of it enhancing that it's going to run them straight into the wall, you know, like don't worry about it too much. Hold on loosely, like focus on yourself, do your thing, but 
there will be craziness around you. People will be, as Ross said, running afoul. <laughs> and it, you, and you'll be like, should I also drink bourbon every night? <laughs> and then you'll go, at mm -hmm. some point, hopefully you'll go, no, because things don't seem to work out well for that guy. I don't want to be like that. So you need to pay attention. You know, if you're young and in that scene, I think it's cautionary tale about, you know, when I, when I was reading this book, it's so beautifully written. And then I thought of something like, um, oh my gosh, there's those shows that show uh, some entertainer crash and burn. Do you know what I'm talking about? It's like the, it used to be a series, right? And they would show this rising star that then crashed and went crazy. And I used to really like those when I was young. And then as I got older, I'm like, oh, I don't like that. I don't like hearing about someone's downfall. It feels so cheap, you know? But it's because when they would do it, when they would show like a child star crash and burn, they did it in a really tacky kind of feasting on someone's carcass kind of way. Mm. These stories, I think, are told like in honor of a tragic hero kind of way. Like this is this person sort of creating something that we all came to appreciate almost at the expense of themselves, but also that's who they were. That's where it came from. I'm not going to polish it up in any way to make it what it isn't, you know, it came out of this exact person. So yeah. So I want to read this part because this is so wonderful or maybe Ross, Ross, can you turn to page 117? I've been practicing. Okay, on um, page 117, um, start with he claimed gangsters up at the top and go down to. Oh, yeah. To okay, hang on. Charles Mingus Enterprises. So most of this page, but stop at Charles Mingus Enterprises. So he claimed gangsters. Oh, I'm so in the right page. Hang on. 117. Um, top. Okay, he claimed gangsters were out to get him and warned others that gangster friends of his would kill them. He said whatever he wanted to, because as far as he was concerned, he had nothing to keep quiet about. People asked quietly, who the fuck did he think he was? That was an easy one to answer. He thought he was Charles Mingus, the only Charles Mingus. He fought on every front he could to extricate himself from the clutches of a holding corporation called America. He wanted to own the means of production, his production. He set up his own record label and organized a rebel alternative to the official Newport Festival driving around the town with a bullhorn, getting them to come to his festival as though he were telling them to vote Mingus, vote Mingus. He wanted to own his own club, a ballroom where he could play dance music, a school for music, art, and gymnastics. Nothing was ever enough. Convinced he was being ripped off right down the line, he decided to make his records available through mail order only and almost got prosecuted himself for ripping other people off. Customers sent in checks, waited for the records that never arrived, and then wrote to ask what was going on, thereby adding to the chaos at Charles Mingus Enterprises. <laughs> yes. So I'm thinking, like, what if you knew this guy? You'd be like, this guy is fucking crazy if he was driving around Ann Arbor with a bullhorn. <laughs> you know, like, I'm going to sell my records this way. You'd be like, Charles, man, hey. <laughs> Relax, buddy. I, I feel like he is. It, it, he does make him seem like a character of people I have actually known, though. You know what I mean? Yes. 
Yes. It's just so we're like, I appreciate your enthusiasm, but Funny. I'm gonna need a summer off from yeah. you and I wish you luck. Yeah. Yeah. That's uh I love that. <laughs> okay. So I uh, wanted to ask y'all, because I have something else I want you to read, but I wanted to see if there was anything that you wanted to read or talk about specifically. I didn't like mark anything to specifically read, but I mean, I marked some things. Um. Um, there was there was a number of like really nice ideas, like when he's criticizing the 10 minute Coltrane like solos with little of the feeling that distinguishes both the master and his most distinguished disciples like Pharaoh Sanders. Listening to them, you're tempted, even when impressed, to respond like Lester Young. Yeah, man, but can you sing me a song? And I, I like that because I came up playing a lot of free music and, and had to learn to play songs because songs are what holds the emotion and what tells the story and people need to connect to it somewhere and don't just want to hear the squeals all the time, even though those are fun to play. And you have to contextualize it in some way that carries the meaning for an audience, which, you know, I'm less interested in what an audience thinks than I am interested in how it feels for the band. Um, but I thought that was an interesting little sentiment that he said there, because the song is, is what it is. The song is what tells the story. And yeah. Like, and having the context of the song is where you can see people's individual creativity uh blossom you know within the context of the chord change or of, or of an idiom and see how they play within that like court or that field or you know those parameters um well and which, also too like to, to bring it full circle like by learning how to tell the story of a song like you learn how to tell the story of that you're making up on the spot you know what i mean but like mm -hmm. you don't learn to be a great storyteller without you know, learning lots of other stories, you know, exactly. There are tangents story up out of nothing, then you bet, you know, it's good to learn. And that's why too, what a lot of jazz musicians do. Um, well, what like every jazz musician does, this is like the tried into met true method of learning how to speak the language is transcription, you know, so once you learn the tune, you listen to the solo that bird played over whatever tune a billion times, and you learn it you know and you, you literally learn to play the improvisations of these great musicians you know and um so that so once you learn how to tell the story of the song then you're learning okay now like how did lester young continue that story like what was his take on it you know and what was bird's take on it and whatever you know yeah i think yeah. that's kind of the most interesting and exciting part of it is hearing you know a dozen different versions of one tune and beginning to understand what each of these people were doing in yeah. and what made their individual contribution unique like that's a lot to ask of a listener of a you know you can just enjoy that it sounds cool but there that you can it's one of those things that if you dive you can keep diving forever that you know the, it's a deep deep well <laughs> you know yeah yeah deep well into all the different takes on something is that what you mean yeah i mean yeah, just, just 
the jazz, like the recorded jazz tradition, you know, I mean, it's like, I mean, jazz players, and I'm by no means like a total like record hound, but like, you know, most jazz players have extensive record collections and know them really well. And, you know, you kind of gain this knowledge of who played on which dates with who and, um, you know, I mean, you kind of have to, to like kind of speak the language that if you're going to walk onto a bandstand and play it with some, you know, everyone else has done that. And like, you kind of have to do that to a certain level to just understand, okay. So when someone calls a tune, you know, and someone says like, Hey, we're going to play all the things you are, that could mean a billion different things. You know what I mean? That tune has been yeah. played backwards and forward, slow, fast, like Latin. I mean, you like, you name it. That tune has been played yes. every way you can think of it and a billion more, you know? And so if you're going to enter that yeah. conversation, you know, you kind of have to do your homework, you know? Yes, yes. I'm thinking about two things. One was the first couple of times I worked at the Firefly Club when the big band played and everybody, all these guys just show up kind of super relaxed, you know, they're bringing their horns in, they're getting set up and they have these giant books that they put on the stand in front of them, you know, and and I thought, oh, this is the band. And then I start noticing like, oh, no, that guy changed. Oh, wait, that's a different one of those guys. Like I was blown away when I realized they just call a tune and everybody's just expected to know it. But there's like 10 million of them and they just go, oh, yeah, oh, yeah I got it. You know, oh, he's going to take a solo. And I'm like, are they just making this up? Like it blew my mind so apart. But I also understand it as I don't know if you've ever been to like an, a, a long form improv show where like I've been to a long form improv show where all they get is like a genre and a first word. Right. And they put together an entire musical with harmonies and a drama, and the first, second, third act, you know, and they do the whole thing because all the members of that crew are so skilled that they immediately know that the game that has been introduced, like somebody says something on stage and it's almost like going wink, we're playing this game now. And they carry that through the entire show. And then somebody names something. And I realize there's so much in common with improv you know, comedy performance and jazz, because if you know all the rules to all the games and you really, really, really know them and you've played them with a lot of different people, then you can kind of play in any situation. You can go, you know, those people that jump up on whose line is it anyway, and they can do anything, make up anything on the spot. They're at that level of like, I'm completely comfortable improvising in any situation, you know, because they've got all these little frameworks built up and connections with everything. They know if somebody does this, we're going down this little path, you know, and I understand how long it's supposed to last and when we're supposed to get the laugh and it all works. So that fascinates me. <laughs> totally, yeah. totally, yeah. that's, um, that's exactly, that's awesome. There's a, I wanted to let people know that in the back of this book on page 223, there's a discography. So I started listening to the list discography last night, which is Lester Young and Thelonious Monk, Bud Powell, Ben Webster, Charles Mingus, um who's next i think art peppers in there chet baker and that's the uh he he mentions the discography but he doesn't and he doesn't talk at all very much about the recording industry and these 
the experience of the musicians working within that, but it's also because of the, that part of the 20th century that we get to hear all this music and like, right. I don't know. It's, it's a phenomenon of history that, that any of this exists for us to hear now. You don't even have to go to the library. You can just type it in and I don't know yeah. that that didn't that perspective didn't have any much to do with this. That's true. His writing, even, but like, even, even just like in terms of the anecdotes and things, like he, there's not very much mention of these guys doing record dates. You know, like right. And there's Which, a I, there's a lot of cool stories prolific, about the record. If, yeah, they were prolifically like active in the recording studio as well as on the bandstand. So, I mean, I guess yeah. Some Still, and how the medium. Now that you mention it, I'm like, yeah, he doesn't. That's not like there's no stories about right because there are some great stories from record dates, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Yeah. Well, he does tell the story of. Oh no no no! I looked that up. I looked that up. The one about, um, I think it was, was Thelonious Monk, who was thought to have schizophrenia. Who was thought to have schizophrenia? Bud Powell. Powell. Oh, Bud Powell, yeah. I'm gonna I'm gonna mess that story up. I'm gonna mess that story up. I'm not gonna because yeah. I can't remember I wasn't which sure one. to to tell the apocryphal stories I had heard, you know. Like yeah. John Sinclair does a poem about Thelonious Monk and and somebody gives him a ten strip or something. And leaves and he comes back to check on him and monk opens the door just to crack with the chain on there and he says do you have do you have any more of that stuff man this don't seem to be doing anything what is it what's a 10 strip lsd oh okay a 10 strip gosh i'm like gosh this could be anything <laughs> i was going through <laughs> a lot of options in my mind yeah this the moral the moral being that the lsd had no effect on Thelonious Monk's disposition at all. And yeah, do you have any? I don't think this. I don't think this stuff is working. Yeah, um, yeah. there's like the story of um, Coltrane nodding off in the session. Is that with Monk or you know? And like you can hear it on the record. You know, it's like as they come around the last chorus of solo. You know, he's like Coltrane, Coltrane. You know, <laughs> wow. Making up, it up. You know? Yeah, yeah. 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 So I want to read this Art Pepper um, playing. So they paint this picture of Art Pepper sort of looking out of the prison bars and imagining himself on the beach with the lady, right? That's the Art Pepper part, correct? Or is that Chet Baker? Yeah. No, I think that's the Art Pepper part. I agree. I think it's Pepper. Okay. Okay. Wow. And so when he, there's this there's this passage of him playing in the quiet jail yard. Do you remember this? Oh, yeah. That oh, yeah. Seems in, it's like the where Shawshank him, scene. Where they give him an alto in the, in the prison yard. Sure yeah. So, <laughs> so from page, the top of 172 to, oh, my gosh, I just want to read the whole thing. Yeah, it's very beautiful. Yeah, Ross, start with. Oh, 
Start with the horn. The and horn then is go cradled in his arms. Go to yes. where? Go all the go. way through. Go all the way through till till the till the end of the chapter. I'm serious. Oh, I think too far. Just do it. Well, okay. You know what? We'll pause. We'll pause with no. He's going to break free. Yeah. So Let's just give him a little. Yes. Give him a little then we'll take a break. There's. See, it's hard to find a stopping point, but yeah, start, yeah. So what? Let's go. The horn is cradled in I, his arms. After he's going to yeah. break free, and then we'll I go. Think, I think Dyer's best success in this book is just writing a, about the sort of mystical qualities of the performance of music. Yeah, the, like, so yeah. Um, nobody, I've been noticing this. Like, no two musicians have the same understanding of music. And there's this, these overlapping ways that people talk about it. And if you have similar experiences, you talk about it, like I'll talk about it more similarly with Dan than someone in Nashville, which is terms of our experience um, and the type of music we've been playing. Like, um, and, and Dyer kind of catches some of that, just that no, no two people have the same understanding of it. Even though you could be playing the same song or in the same band your whole life, it's still like really individual. Yeah. Anyway, so here is I got to before we read this long thing. I got. I'm sorry to do this. I thought I I have to go around six o'clock because Catherine made a dinner dinner reservation. We have to drive there. Oh. So, so I, 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 yeah. I'm sorry. I, I, well, I, I, I jerk we'll because like I made us start a little bit late already. <laughs> yeah. Here's what we'll do then. Here's what we'll do then. Thanks for telling me that. Because we'll go ahead and I'll record myself saying goodbye to you, right? Yeah. And then we'll, Ross and I will go read that section and then we'll wrap up. And then sure. I'll just edit it. Okay, yeah. Sure. So, ah. all right. So Dan, <laughs> the cavalry is about to arrive over here too. Yeah, Dan, yeah. Um, so any final thoughts about the book? And tell me what you've got coming up. Okay. Um, I don't, I'm not, I, I love this guys. This was so much fun. This was like the best part of my week by far. <laughs> so thank you. And it was such a joy to revisit this. It was like great change from like watching garbage on Netflix at night. Like, <laughs> great recommendation. Right now. Really great, so. Good. I'm so glad you both were, were down to talk about it too. It was, it was really super fulfilling. Um, oh, good. yeah, I mean, the only thing I really, I have some things coming up, but you know, things quiet down after the summer, but um, if anyone wants to come down and see um, the samba band that I direct at school, which is really fun. It's like Samba Music of Brazil, you know, that concert is down here at Bowling Green on Thursday, the 6th of April at 8 p.m. And it's free. And then, you know, I play this Wednesday night um, gig here at this brewery called Arlen's Good Beer, um, which I play with my friends and the faculty. And um, it's really fun. And, and most of the time it's a jam session. So we play the first set and then it's kind of an open jam session after that. In the summers, we tend to play a bit more because um, there aren't as many students around. But um, yeah, so it's fun. I'd love to see some Ann Arbor. Brennan, Brennan was even saying we, we got to have like townie night, uh, Ann Arbor townie night down here and like get, you know. Yeah, we're going to come gonna, down and play and, you know. We're so going to raid your little joint. I'm working <laughs> and tell people how to find you and your music. Um, I have a website. It's just, um, yeah, it's danpiccolo.com. And, you know, I put out a, a record of solo percussion music um, a couple years ago that um, people can check out and there's some videos on there and stuff. So. Okay. 
Okay. Awesome. Thank you so much oh. for suggesting this book. Oh, and man, we'll I'm so happy I did. I really, it was great. I thank you guys so much. Yeah, we'll keep doing great it. Great chatting is- with you about it. <laughs> <laughs> All, All right. right. Bye. Love you guys. Bye. Talk to you soon. Okay. Okay. So, yeah, I want you to read that part about him playing the trumpet. And then I want us to talk about this one other quote, and then we'll wrap up. Okay. So, I think this is, yeah. um, this is Art Pepper um, playing an alto sax. Take us on a trip. The first guy takes it and hands it to Art, a dull looking mm-hmm. alto. Take us on a trip. I haven't touched a horn in a year. So now's the time. I don't know if I can still play. You can play. The horn is cradled in his arms. He lifts it to a vertical position, feeling the keys rattle against the buttons of his prison tunic. The shadow has crawled to within a couple feet of him, and he steps out of the glare into the cool. After blowing a few scales, he starts to play a simple melody, something he knows well, something he can feel his way by and get used to the mouthpiece, the fingering, playing slow. A couple of the guys near him click their fingers. He sees a foot moving slightly in the bright yard. For a couple of minutes, he plays nothing but the melody, then begins to move away from it cautiously at first, careful not to lose himself. He hears someone say his name, is aware that more and more people in the yard are listening, the hubbub of voices subsiding. There is a perfection of space about the way the prisoners are spread out in the yard. Although he is still playing the melody, it is as if it is gradually becoming hemmed in and has less room to move until all it can do is cry out, tearing at itself like someone dashing his head against the walls of a cell. One of the cons whispers that it is like hearing a man's spirit beaten out of him. Next to him, an old Negro shakes his head. No, he's going to break free. A flurry of twisted notes, dot, dot, dot. Um, Yes, he's playing this in the prison yard, and it's beautiful it's it's like this tentative i'm gonna play and it's gonna start coming naturally but it paints this picture of that thing you're watching somebody do like can this person still run has this person still got it but also being with a lot of grace like there's so much grace like nobody here can do anything like he does so probably anything that he plays is going to be the best thing they've ever heard well that's true yeah, you know. I think it's also he's digging in to me. Maybe I'm just reading into it, but he seems to be digging into the metaphor about the music being liberation music. Um, yes. For you know, for Black Americans and for all people, and the the you know juxtaposing like the the beauty and freedom of music with this horrible existence in the prison. Um, maybe that's a um let's do one more paragraph can we yeah i like it when he finishes when he finishes he's sweating no he's gonna break free after a flurry of twisted notes it seems there is nowhere for the solo to go no one moves the cons stand where they are surrounding him like a fighter who has been beaten to the canvas struggling to clear his head spitting out slurred notes like broken teeth preparing to haul himself up the ladder of the referee's count Listening, the prisoners know that his playing is about something which is not higher, but deeper than dignity, self-respect, pride, or love, deeper than the spirit, the simple resilience of the body. Years from now, when his body has become a sustaining reservoir of pain, art will remember the lesson of this day. If he can stand up, he can play, and if he can play, he can play beautifully. 
For a few moments, he falters, oblivious to what he is playing, clutching the eighth and ninth rungs of the count. Then, summoning everything, he searches for the highest note, reaches it just, and soars clear. At the height of this leap, before gravity reasserts itself, there is a moment of absolute weightlessness, bright, clear, serene. Before he is falling again, gliding in a gorgeous arc, subsiding into the deep moan of the blues, and the convicts realize that's what it's been about all along, a dream of falling. When he finishes, he is sweating. He nods his head so slightly as like a twitch slowed right down. All around him is the silence of the prisoners listening. Not only the prisoners silent, there's also the gray silence of the guards watching. A nightstick tapped four-four time onto the hard palm of a hand. Toe caps, concrete, the squeal of crushed grit. Soon, not even that. Yeah, and then he... He describes this silence that just keeps going. No one's moving. It's like no one wants to break the silence. No one wants to go back to the noise. No one wants it to end. And so people are just like holding themselves in silence. And you keep thinking that applause is going to erupt, but the silence that makes the silence even better because nobody's doing it. Nobody wants to move along. It's so wonderful it's so wonderful so i loved that passage so i think about the he is really good because i would say that's very romantic you know so i don't think he's it is sad but it's also everyone gets honored i think every all of the everyone he's talking about is getting honored even though he's painting them in the most messy human tragic flaw kind of way you know yeah. honoring them for yeah, sure yeah oh i i agree yeah i don't think he's like doing anybody dirty it it is yeah the tale of showing like well they're still like approaching their life with dignity and approaching the music the same way and like in spite of all of these awful things like yeah so many people got clobbered by the cops and yeah. all, different, all different stuff and drugs um but yeah that there's dignity and and the the way they succeeded at what they created in the sound in spite of all that i think he honors that pretty well it's not yeah it's not just like a sordid tale of misery right but also it's the honor of like i need us all to look at the fact that this man was creating magic things and our society beat him down. Yeah. And it was fault. But also they're still awesome. It's like a they're still outliving you, whoever you were that hit him in the you know, like there's still that person is an unnamed, you know, the army guard is an unnamed asshole. Right. Those 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 people just exist as like a yeah yeah the the ticket taker yeah 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 for sure for sure so one of the things the very last things i wanted to talk about on page 207 so one of the things about this book is there's a preface and then there's all these stories um of different uh amazing jazz musician stories very just wonderfully observant and slightly improvised historical truths, but with a lot of 
creative license, I think is a good way to put it. Mm-hmm. And then the back of the book, part three, is more of more of a scholastic analysis of these same topics. So, yeah, you get to the academic part there. Yeah. yeah. So there's the academic part. And in the academic part, sounds completely different. It's really interesting to go from this writer's, the middle of this book to the end, because it sounds like two completely different writers. It's pretty yeah, impressive. He went, he went real postdoc thesis area on yes yes and i'm like oh wait so, i wasn't ready for this this isn't as what fun part we, what part are you looking at here so on page 207 um he says he's talking about the long shadow of coltrane and the question of what can still be said in the bebop idiom or part of a larger mm-hmm. doubt facing contemporary jazz players does any new and important work remain to be done so that's interesting because he's talking about like almost every person who's playing jazz is wrestling with the idea of like how much how do we go deeper do we go wider do we just, do we just keep reinterpreting the same thing and so that at the bottom of that paragraph he says the art form most devoted to its past jazz has always been the most forward looking so that the most radical work is often simultaneously the most traditional. I thought that was so fascinating because mm-hmm. if you're if you're playing jazz standards, right? You're basing your what you're presenting on this long long history. Yeah. That that a bunch of people have agreed to learn. And also you realize that part of this history is making your own, making it your own. And you're making it your own based on whoever you grew up learning it from, who had already made it their own. And so what do you think about that statement? That art form devoted to its past, jazz as always, what do you think about that? Now, let me look at it again so I can. Art form devoted to its past, most forward-looking, the most radical work is often simultaneously the most traditional. Yeah, yeah, the tradition, I mean, the tradition at its best, if such a thing, is in breaking with tradition. The critics were, didn't like them, you know, Miles' next album didn't sound like Miles' last album. So I already made that one. You know, yeah. the tradition is to expand it. But you run the risk in any genre of just being, doing reenactments, you know. Um, and that is a is a way of learning things, but it's not necessarily like when real music comes from people in this, and, and generally I mean original music and not um, interpretations of classics, a scene can exist and flourish in a way that it can't. If it's like, well, there's, you know, on any Friday night, you could go see, you know, a bar band playing rock and roll covers, or you could see a jazz band playing jazz covers essentially but they don't call them that but that you're just playing cover tunes you know if you're doing a bunch of monk and mingus those are cover tunes in in any other in any other genre um and yeah they offer vehicles for individuals to have expression um but yeah i i guess i think about that as i'm like many musicians are it's like you get work in ways that like I'm in one band that's doing cover songs 
from the 19 teens and 20s and we're playing early jazz and a little bit of ragtime music and country blues and things like that and it's relevant music to us and to our, our band leader but it's challenging to figure out what i can add to it from my my voice like i'm there as a, a student and as an artist i hope um but i don't want to just imitate buddy bolden or Wynton marsalis you know um it's it's a brilliant education to study louis armstrong's music but he was already him you know so i don't want to play that way either so it's yet at the same time there is a an audience to hear this music so we book a gig and play for the people that love 1920s jazz and that's a gig and, and i'm but i feel pressure at the same time like i'm we're yearning for what's the thing that what's the sound of today of 2023 of, of our southeast michigan scene what yes. and i feel like we need to take responsibility for breaking out of the kind of um plague of idioms you know just i'm in a in a dance band that plays funk music you know mm -hmm. but it's all from the golden era of funk but we do some originals in the tradition um so it's yes. like how do we put together a thing that is clearly enough um it's not a drift in a you can't relate it to anything but it's people don't like novelty so you, you got to introduce it in fragments um, yes yes and and uh the challenge is to write or collaborate in ways that um we feel like we can make our music in a way that honors the history and learn from playing music other people's music but you don't want to stay there you don't want to live there and uh so i do these gigs but all the while wondering and waiting and sitting at the piano and writing and hoping and um studying and trying to collaborate with people to see like what sound can we create that's you know true to us um not that we're like better or different or ever going to exceed what mingus or monk have done but we could do something that's honest for our community in this era in our time in our region in the tradition of breaking the tradition we're still i believe we're still striving to create an, our own original sound with the people that are in our you know in our lives like yeah um i think that that's one of the traditions that gets passed down in the tradition it's like okay if you study it you can see each progression of pushing the thing a little bit farther out in one direction or another harmonically or rhythmically or some other way pushing it beyond what those people's mentors were doing and uh i think that's our hope you know and it sustaining sustaining interest is like oh okay i can do a musical theater gig and i enjoyed learning the music of the 1920s rural um folk music and blues and stuff like that and um but i'm i'm using that as a tool of my own education i guess and and to find ways into that expression that mode of expression 
but I don't, that doesn't feel like the end of the road. That's like a, another yeah. guide, another guidepost. Yeah. So you're always forward thinking. Like it's, it's a very, it's interesting because that's exactly what he's saying. It's like, it's one of the most traditional things you can do, but it's always forward thinking. It's always going like, what's the next thing I can learn? What's the next thing I can learn? Like, like that you can't be a non-curious to learn jazz musician really like it doesn't, yeah, it doesn't work. add up yeah. it doesn't work you have to be curious to learn and like willing to learn how to play with a bunch of different people if you're even going to do it at all so it's this very traditional thing that by nature it's it's really fascinating it's really fascinating so i'm actually pretty excited to read more from him just because i felt like it was really easy to read it was really like painted pictures and then got really academic and yeah so if if I find yeah. one at the dollar sale, I might pick it up, but I'm not in a hurry. I I have a few other things on my list that I got to get to before I go back to Dyer. I, yeah. I thought he well, was no, all I have right. Like so. Nine things. I've got nine yeah. things stacked up over there. Oh, my gosh. But I but I liked um, I, there's a couple of amazing reviews that were just as amazing as this one. They're go. they're saying, you know, so. I'm I'm curious about what he does that's that's different. So yeah, yeah. So the photography where... one looked interesting. Uh, yeah, yeah, he he was entertaining. Yes, um, yes. I kind of felt like well, he's just riding everybody's jock, though. You know, here's a book about other artists. Here's another book about great athletes. Here's the book about. It's like okay, what did that's great. I, I you got to be talented to write eloquently about high-level yeah. artists music athletes oh, yeah. you do have to be talented but what's his so to me i hear him playing he's like i made an, a jazz album and it's stella by starlight and all the things you are and all of the and summertime all of the tunes that everyone learns and records for their first jazz album you yes, know yeah. he's it doesn't sound like he's composing his own his own material he's riffing he's riffing on the themes that have been given to us and this is that's a a gig too last night we're playing duke ellington music having a great time as a vehicle for for exploring an expression and as a tribute to duke ellington and as something that we've learned that we've enjoyed all our lives that now we've learned how to do Um, so it is you know, we are reenacting uh, a jazz club, but there's no smoking. And yeah, you know, yeah. How much of it is real, and how much of it is this speakeasy acting? Yeah, like a different well, time in American history. I know. I'm going to New Orleans in a in a couple of weeks. This might already be out, or I might be just getting back. But I. I'm going to be in New Orleans from like right at the beginning of April, a couple of weeks and are just going there in about a week and a half. And there's a, we're right on Bourbon street and there's a jazz club in the hotel. And I'm so excited. I'm so excited. Um, Because I was reading this thinking like, when I think about the firefly club, that back dock of the old firefly club where everybody went to Mm -hmm. smoke. Do you remember Mm -hmm. what I'm talking about? Yeah. Um, Yeah. 
Yeah. And, and you had to walk through the bottle room, the room where all the like recycled beer bottles were sitting in cases. And so it was always mm-hmm. kind of fruit fly and sticky, yeah. but I had so many great like conversations back there. Yeah. And, and, and Paul Keller used to tell that story. That's kind of a very common jazz stories. Like there's these, you know, four musicians and their cars broken down and they're walking through the snow with all of their instruments and everything. And they're looking through the window at this family that's like warm at the kitchen table with all this food and the whole family's there. And the musicians are like, how do they live like that? (laughs) (laughs) And so whenever I hear musician stories or read stories like this, I think about all the just regular old dudes frumpled up, you know, just like coughing in the back. And then they'd come out and play this beautiful music. And it was this very humble production, you know, it was just, yeah. Yeah. So um, where can we see you, hear you? I've got some cool ones. I'm every Thursday night. I'm at the last word bar with the Ferritones and let's see on June 16th, the Ferritones are going for our annual gig at the Book Nook in Montague, Michigan. And so this is, you know, linking up the music and literature conversation here. Um, Our friend Andrew runs a nice shop out there that has a cool coffee bar, wine and sandwiches and all this. They have a stage and a piano and they have got a great selection of contemporary authors. It's a very cool little bookshop. Where's Montague? Um, what? It's it's the home of the world's largest weather vane, or that maybe that's Whitehall. Um, it's in West Michigan. It's it's right right next to Lake Michigan. Okay, um, okay, yay, love it. And uh, that's a that's a cool one. A nice little scene out there. And I'm playing with Raleigh Tussing at the Nor'easter Festival on June 9th. Um, okay. And that's Raleigh um, has transcribed as dan pointed out a lot of these tunes you can't find on youtube he's learned them from collection of rare 78s um and that's his favorite music so i've been learning it with raleigh um we have a little trio that's playing at the nor'easter festival playing early jazz and blues um really been an exciting uh group for me to play in and get a chance to dig into that music a little bit more in depth yeah you know um yeah so those are those are two and then yeah the shag bark farm is hosting the smiling acres music festival smiling acres music festival yeah and the tone farmers will be there this summer um so that's my my duo with brendan andes and a long time collaborative partnership yes Um, that's on july 1st with the shag bark farm so a few cool things coming up for the summer um, yeah enjoying the, the spring and on my website i i'll uh i'll put up the dates i should put up the dates in my website rosshub.com yeah. and there's links to some of the recordings that i've i've been a part of and things like that so um, okay yeah we got websites Thelonious monk mercifully never had to upload his show dates on his website you know they're right they had someone who had a job at the newspaper whose job it was because to put that, that date point, in the newspaper. I, yeah, websites <laughs> were the future. Now we're in the future. <laughs> we, 
I would love if there was just a newspaper that put this stuff and then I could not do that. But um, we, we chose not to have that. That's why we're society. promoting beating. See, we're yeah. sneaking in on people. They think just, they're, they're, they're think they're, they think they're just going to plug in and be tuned out. I'm like, no, you guys you are have homework. Reading. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. I think in. the research department is awake and alive and well. And, and I love being part of a, thing like this and being uh, just in a scene where people are, are trying to develop in this way, you know, yes. studying, reading, talking yes. about it. I appreciate the, right. the effort you're putting in towards that. Well, thank you. It's my favorite thing. So um, thanks everybody for listening. This was wonderful. I was with Dan Piccolo and Ross Huff and this is Reads and Weeds. Bye. Au revoir. Hi, Reads and Weeds listeners. This is Shelly. You are invited to a live recording of this show. It is happening at 3 p.m. on May 20th at the Independent Comedy Club in Hamtramck as part of the Detroit Women of Comedy Festival. It's going to be such a fun weekend, and I would love to see you there. The recording is free, and tickets are on sale for all the shows already at planetant.com. Hope to see you there.